You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we begin our series on celebrating the birth of Jesus and his rightful place of preeminence over all things with a series we are calling Christ, Let Earth Receive Her King. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. So a couple of weeks ago I was reading and I came across an article uh, that grabbed my attention. It's, it's a question that you probably have been asked, has been asked of you. Um, you may have thought about it, but the question was this, do Christians, Jews, and Muslims worship the same God? Now, as you think through it, I don't think you're surprised by the question. The question really has at the heart of it that there's a God in heaven and we may just all call him by different names. So that's not what's most true about evangelicals, which is a word that we fit into that camp as a church. But this 2022 study sought to figure out exactly where people stand, okay? So here's kind of the good news. 97% of Americans who would agree with that label evangelical would say that, yes, there is one true God. He exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the triunity of God. Now, I could be upset that it's not 100% because truthfully it should be 100%, but 97%, okay, I can tolerate. We got 3% who are missing the triunity of God, which is a foundational uh, uh, tenet of our faith. So I can see that and say, okay, this next part was what was really concerning. 60% of evangelicals will also agree with this statement. So of the 97% that agreed with the previous sentence that God exists in triunity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, also would agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, it's really hard to fathom that if you hold to that first question, that you could simultaneously believe this statement, and 60% of them do. It's troubling. Which led LifeWay to report the, I mean, come, uh, print this finding. A majority of evangelicals are traditional enough to believe in the Christian trinity, yet inclusive enough to believe worshiping the wrong God is not disqualifying. So, who is this person of Jesus? Who is he? We're going to spend this Christmas season looking at that question. We're going to go through a significant portion of Colossians. I'd encourage you to turn there. If you've got a copy of Scripture with you, if you're using a digital copy, that's great. Uh, Go to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to work through a portion of Colossians over this Christmas season. And we're going to do it a little bit out of order. So we're going to start today uh, in chapter 2. And we're going to cover all of chapter 2 in the next couple of weeks. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to bounce back to Colossians chapter 1. For this reason, is in the way that Paul is writing, he writes in Colossians 1 about who the person of Christ is, and we're going to cover that Christmas Eve. And then he outlines through chapter 2 different things that Christ is preeminent over, why he excels greater than these things. And so we're going to look at legalism next week. And over the, the following week, we're going to look at a false spirituality kind of thing. But today, we're going to look at how Christ is preeminent over philosophy. And if you're asking yourself, I kind of know the word, what does the word look like? What does it mean? How do you define philosophy? The, the word really gets defined this way. It, it's discussing or the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. The most important, maybe questions of this life, right? What can I know? What is real? And what is the meaning or purpose of life? 
Now, as we come together to talk about it, what I'm going to tell you again from that stat we just talked about, those statistics, is you can be right on the triunity of God and completely miss the boat on the fact of who we worship. So when I come to the words of Proverbs and we read something like Proverbs 14 that says, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end this way is death, is the moment that we want to divorce the idea that we can have something like knowledge and wisdom and the importance of the meaning of life, and we want to go look for it outside of the scriptures, recognize we're on a path that's leading to death if we are not informed by what the scriptures say. So it's against that backdrop that today we're going to begin our study. Colossians chapter 2, he's going to be talking with us about why Christ is preeminent over human traditions, philosophies, and the way we think about things. So Colossians chapter 2, I invite you to read along with me. Uh, I'll be starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, For I want, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out of sea. And for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. You hear Paul's heart for these people? Paul loves these people. There's people he hasn't even met, haven't even seen you face to face, but he loves them. He's committed to them. And if we'd started in chapter 1, I want to, if you would look up, I want to show you two verses that I think would capture it. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul's heart. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We are always thanking God for you. We're praying for you all the time. Matter of fact, if you drop down to verse 9. So, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. His heart for these people is clear. Whether he's met him or not, I am praying for you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm all in on you. I want whatever's best for you. And he starts talking about how much he cares for him. And his prayer life demonstrates it. It's not just saying, hey, man, I love you. It's good to see you. No, he's all in. He's demonstrating. We pray for you literally all the time. All the time we're praying for you. We're all in. And not just you at Colossae, for those who are at Laodicea. Now, who's Laodicea? I'm praying for you. I'm praying for those in Laodicea. And if we got to the end, if we looked at Colossians chapter 4, we would see this statement from Paul, this instruction. When you've read this letter in this local body at Colossae, who I'm sending it to, when you've read it, I want you to pass it on to the church at Laodicea, the Laodiceans. I want them to have it so that they're aware of what's going on. Who are the Laodiceans? Well, they exist pretty closely. They're right there. This was... Asia Minor now, it's modern-day Turkey. But you can see how close the two cities are. And what's happening, as Colossae was a significant city, so was Heropolis, but everything's moving toward Laodicea. Laodicea had become a wealthy city. It was a city of medicine. It was a city of textiles. Wherever you have textiles, you've got medicine. The money center is moving there. And all of a sudden, you get money there. Now the power brokers are moving there. The thinkers are there. Life is happening there. And so they're all in. 
So if Paul says, I'm going to write this letter, I want you to read it. You're a current big city, but I see where it's moving. I want you to go ahead and send this into Laodicea because they need to be prepared for what I'm about to tell you all today. They need to be aware. Laodicea was wealthy enough that in, 80, in year 8060, as an earthquake comes through, wipes out the city. The whole world wants to respond and help them rebuild. And they're like, no, 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 we don't need your money. We are self-sufficient. We are affluent enough that we can handle our own disasters. And so off they go. That's who these people are. I want you to know how much I struggle for you. Church at Colossae, church at Laodicea, I am praying for you. I'm not stopping praying for you. We pray for you all the time. What's he praying? Well, you hear his word struggle there? I've got a great struggle. I've got a great struggle. Not a great struggle with you, a great struggle for you. What's the difference? Well, you know people that you struggle with. People that you struggle with are the people that maybe you see them and you think, maybe they haven't seen me and I'll turn off and walk down the hallway so I don't have to see them. Those are people you struggle with. You know the difference? People that you struggle for are the people that you come alongside them in their lives. It's the people that you feel their joys at the level they feel joy. You feel their heartaches and their pains at the level they feel heartaches and pains. It's the people that you urgently are praying for to see Christ formed in them. It's the people that you feel everything. You may want more for them than they want for themselves at this point. I can tell you, as a parent to kids who are in their 20s and they live in another state, I want good things for them. And when their heart breaks, our heart breaks. When they have joys, when they call and they've got something good going on, we celebrate that. I talk to him on the phone and you start trying to connect the dots, right? Like, how does their tone of voice sound? What's the vocabulary that they're using? Are they leaning into something? Is something good? Do I think they're being real? How's that? Because I am struggling for them. My heart's all in on them. Question is, who is it that we feel that way for? Paul feels that way for these people, some of whom he's never even met face to face, but he's all in on them. He says, these are the things that I want for you, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, so that you can reach all the riches of the full assurance and the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Here's what I want for you. I'm really asking for two things significantly with relationships. One is I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. That speaks of an inner strength. If you were here in our last series, when we talked about all these one another passages, one of the things that I, I brought up here was this pack of Lifesavers. And I talked about my family and Lifesavers and something we learned from a Happy Day show, that we would show up when we're discouraged and we bring a pack of Lifesavers, which really doesn't amount to anything more than I'm with you, right? Is that it comes from the idea that you were lacking courage and you had the capacity to put courage into another person. Paul says, what I want you first to experience is I want you to be encouraged. I want there to be courage in your soul that you would know that whatever you're facing today, whatever struggle you're facing, whatever you feel like the, are the insurmountable odds that are facing you in life, you have what it takes to stand up to it because of who Jesus Christ is. I'm praying for you. I've not stopped praying for you. I will continue to pray for you. But we've got to have that on the inside. Number one, encourage an internal strength. And then you catch the second one, knit together. 
knit together. Speaks of an external strength, right? Is that I have this role in my life to seek Christ, to grow spiritually so that I can be encouraged in my soul. And then I lock arms with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we all are locked arms together. Because what I know is this, and you know this as well. There are days where we lack the courage in our own soul to face whatever it is we're facing. The beauty of being knit together is we're all arm in arm locked in. And on the days when we feel like we're wilting, you've got somebody on your right and your left, somebody in front of you and behind you, and they have you. What a joy to know that on those days where you lack the courage is you're knit together with those who are standing firm for Christ, who he is, his direction, and where we're headed. Now, take into account the other side of that equation. Is there are days where you're locked arms with people and they lack the courage and you're walking with the Lord, you're encouraged, and you have that person. I would pray that we as a church have all experienced the joy of being able to lean into the person who we're locked arms with to say, hey, I've got you today. I know it's a hard day. I know it's a hard season. Come on, here's a pack of lifesavers. Let's stand firm. I'm with you. We're going to walk you through this. I'm telling you, it's a great joy. It's a great joy to be a part of the body of believers. And I think that's why Paul uses the words that he does, is that we would be knit together in love to reach all of the riches of the full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He used the word mystery in chapter 1. He uses the word mystery here. Here he tells us the mystery is Jesus Christ. And we have this wonderful opportunity to stand arm in arm encouraged, hopefully. If we're discouraged, the knit together means all that much more. It's part of the joy and the beauty of being part of the body of believers. All of a sudden, we have the opportunity to stand up and lean into this. To what end? Well, that we would know Christ. That we would know Christ. The measure of all wisdom and knowledge Now, what's going on when Paul is writing this message was there was a group of people, if you've got a study Bible, you may see this word down in the notes. They were the Gnostics. It was this idea that there was secret knowledge, is you had people lording secret knowledge over people. We don't really use the word very much in modern day culture, but we still have those people, right? The people that act as though they've been given the keys to wisdom and knowledge. They're smarter than everybody else. They figured out the world better than everybody else. They have all the systems that everybody else is lacking. Well, it was no different. And he's writing a rebuke about him when he says, hey, look, here's the deal. You want to know everything and the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery? It's Jesus Christ. It's been revealed. Matter of fact, in chapter 1, catch these words. He's talking that they would be stable and steadfast. Think about it. Stable and steadfast. In a world where you've got people telling you they have secret information, they have secret knowledge, they know more than you. Imagine how unsettling that can be. Like, what if I'm missing something? What if I'm missing the boat? I need to read more. I need to think more. I need more podcasts. I need more, 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 right? This thing is, hey, that we would be stable and steadfast. We're not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. It's been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. You and I have everything we need for wisdom and knowledge in this world. It's recorded for us in the scriptures. There's no secret information about the scriptures that somebody else has that you're lacking. It's been revealed to you and to me. And it's all found in the person of Jesus Christ. The question for us, what will we do with him? 
Now, there are things that I wish I had answers to. I'm guessing you do as well. We're like, well, I'm missing some important stuff. I know, I am too. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, if you write in the front cover or something, highlight or underline, I will tell you I find great encouragement in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are being revealed belong to us and our children forever. What the Lord has revealed to us, which Scripture tells us everything pertaining to life and godliness, this book, these words have been recorded for us. These are not secret. These are there for us to grow and to study and to learn and to pursue our Lord. And yet I find this to be true. There are some things in this world that the Lord is not telling us the answers to. And I think that I would like them. And if I'm real honest, I would tell you that in a lot of days, I feel entitled to them. God, what are you doing? You owe me an explanation. I think God says, I don't owe you an explanation. The secret things, they belong to me. But what I have revealed, Lance, can you trust me? Have I been faithful? Have I been true? Because in those secret things is where you grow your trust in me. And you watch me work good out of seemingly terrible circumstances and situations. I don't get it. But when we come to this, what we look at is the fact that wisdom is available in the person of Christ. We don't have all the answers, but we have everything we need to know to walk in this life. We have everything that we need. I'm encouraged by Paul's heart for them. If I were to ask you a couple of questions like, are you struggling for somebody? Not with somebody. Everybody's struggling with somebody. Are you struggling for somebody? Is there somebody that you are praying unceasingly for, that you would see Christ formed in them, that you're celebrating their victories, you're hurting with them in their defeats so that you can walk with them in that. And then where do you find encouragement? How are you being encouraged? Because he's about to offer us something that I think if we can answer those questions, where are we encouraged, how do we feel knit together, is I think we'll find something really significant for us. Look with me at verse 4, because here's his concern. He's got this great heart for him. But he's concerned for them, and the concern is real. Verse 4, I say this, I say these things that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's so concerned for them. He's so concerned in his struggle for them as he's sitting there saying, oh, no. Oh, no, I know what's coming. I want them to stand firm. I don't want them to be drawn away. I don't want them to be sucked into this vortex of false reasoning and smooth talking. He says, this isn't new information. These are believers. They've responded to the gospel. There's a word of warning to each of us here. If we've known the gospel and we responded to Christ, we are not an untouchable in this world. We can still be drawn away from Christ. It happens all the time. You knew this. You knew what was going on. He says, I don't want you to be drawn away from your faith. I don't want you to be drawn away from it. Stay to it. Stick to it. You know the reality of who Jesus Christ is. There's not secret knowledge. There's the knowledge that Jesus Christ loves you and died for you. I'm praying it for you all the time. All the time I'm praying for you to embrace it and grab hold of it. And then he uses two military words that you would have a good order and that you would stand firm. A good order. Both of them have to do with military terms. The good order, that there would be a a disciplined regiment to your life. 
Why is that important? Well, remember the, the first two questions? I mean, the first two things he's praying for him is that they would be encouraged. Let me ask you this. How are you spiritually encouraged in your walk with the Lord? And if you're saying, well, I do this, 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 and this, then keep doing it. And if your answer is, well, I don't know, I've really never thought about it. This idea that there would be this good order says that there's a discipline regiment, there's an orderliness to how you're living your life, there is a battle readiness to what's coming. Because what we know is this, these plausible arguments that will be confusing and delude us into different things that aren't true, very rarely do they have a siren attached to them. It's not like somebody was sitting with you at a restaurant and you heard the siren and you're like, beware, here comes some false stuff. No, you're just sitting there with somebody that maybe you know, maybe you love, and they start throwing arguments your way and you're thinking, well, I don't know about that. I've never heard that before. That doesn't seem real. But you know what? I know this person. I love this person. I trust this person. And all of a sudden the trap is set. The idea that there would be a good order to the way that you and I live our lives speaks to the fact that we live our lives daily in the preparation to be encouraged. What does it take to encourage you? How does the Lord encourage you? How are you encouraged in your faith? How are you knit together with others? Are you living the Lone Ranger spiritual life? Because if you are, then recognize this. The day you lack courage, there's nobody holding your arms to hold you up. And we will fall as you would expect. So how are we doing it? We need to know what knits us together. We need to know what encourages us. We need to know how we're going to know Christ. Because the day's coming when that argument's gonna hit your ears. And that's not the time to start preparing. We've got to be prepared. Matter of fact, in the second word that he uses there is that there would be this firmness in our faith, is that there would be this stability. Stable and steadfast. That whatever arguments are coming, you and I have the capacity to say, okay, that's different. That's outside my faith. I don't understand really all that you're saying. I understand that the world may say that. I just know that doesn't line up with my faith. Does it seem like maybe Jews and Muslims worship the same God we worship? I mean, okay, maybe. We need a radar that's disciplined enough and stable and steadfast enough that we can look around and say, no, 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 that doesn't measure up. We've got to have it. Because the arguments are coming. We know that they're coming. So all of a sudden, the question that he asks is this, what's it going to take to stand firm? If we're going to stand firm, what's it going to take? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, Abounding in thanksgiving, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. That's our battle plan. That's your battle plan. We want to be encouraged, we want to be knit together, we want to know Christ. Because the day's coming where there's going to be all of these plausible arguments that are coming after us. They're trying to confuse us. That's what the world wants to do. Here's our battle plan. Did you catch it? First is we're going to walk with Christ. And if, you're, if we talk about every word of Scripture being important, I want you to look at the title there, Christ Jesus the Lord. 
If you look at those words, catch we, the title that we have, Christ is Messiah, Jesus is his humanity, Lord is his, God, his, is his divinity. In that one title, we have the fact that we have a Savior and we have a God, the God-man, all in one title. So walk in him. Walk in him. How do we do it? Well, let's talk about what walking in him would look like. It would be the idea that we know him, so we've got knowledge about him. We've got a wisdom about him, which is the application of knowledge. It's pervaded our moral compass. It's given us a worldview, and it transforms the way we live and act in this world. So if we're going to walk with him, then that's going to require that we know him, that we apply it and interpret it correctly, and then we go out and do it. This isn't a quest to just gain more knowledge to win Bible trivia games. This is the idea that we're seeking transformation when we walk with him. It's been said this way, Paul wants the Colossians to take the vertical relationship they have with God and have it transform the horizontal relationships they enjoy with everybody. If all we're after is pursuing knowledge, then it's not reached the end goal that God had for us. And he's looking at him and he says, I want you to have this moment. Walk with him. Walk with him. When I visit with people about their, their spiritual lives, you know what I hear? Same things you hear, same things I say. Sometimes you say, I'm just really busy. I, I haven't, haven't been able to get into the word much. I haven't been able to pray. I'm just really busy. And if I were to ask you the question, if we're too busy to have time with God, are maybe we just too busy in general? Because the discipline of learning how to walk with him is our first line of defense from the plausible arguments that the world is throwing at us every day. If I were to ask you, if you don't have time to spend with Jesus, but do you have time to go off the rails in your faith into disillusionment and confusion in your faith? Well, no. The question for us is, will we spend time with the Lord? Because he goes on to say, we're called to grow in our faith. Look at what he says, verse 7. We're going to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. You've already been taught this. You have a root system that's guiding you, but that is intended to grow up right, is roots create ongoing growth. You just have to water it. You have to nurture it. It has to be in an environment that's conducive to health. Well, that sounds a whole lot like being encouraged, being knit together, knowing Christ so that we can walk with him because the arguments are coming. And so let's get serious about the fact that we need to walk in him because that's what's going to root us and build us up. These Colossians and Laodiceans, They'd come to faith. There were already churches there. The question wasn't, do they know the Lord? They do know the Lord. The question is, were they going to withstand the onslaught of the confusion of what's coming? The plausible. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it could happen, right? It could happen. You could be led astray in all of that. But he's making it really clear. And I love that he says, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, now, let me ask you this question. If you truly understand the gospel and you understand this, is that we were hopelessly separated from God. We could not achieve a relationship with God. 
You and I, dead in our sins, our sin, single sin, it's pass-fail. It's not graded on a scale. It's pass-fail. If there's any sin, you're separated from God. The wage of that sin is death. Unless somebody pays your wage for you, Jesus Christ comes to earth, takes on flesh, lives a sinless life. He pays the wage, but it wasn't his wage. He pays our wage. And you get set free from that wage, and now you have the opportunity for life, eternal life, by placing our faith that when Jesus did that, he did that for you and me. Now, when he tells this church, I want you to abound in thanksgiving, let me just ask you, does it make sense? Is it plausible is that if you and I were on the block waiting to be executed for our sin and somebody says, you know what, I'll take that sin, I'll take it, you step down, let me step there, and I will pay the wage for you, would maybe gratitude be the appropriate response for that? Because as he's telling them, you've already understood this. And now you're leaving it for some other arguments? Like somebody's like, no, no, no. I mean, that was all fine and well. That cross thing, that's for first graders. Let me give you high school, graduate school philosophy. You really need to know what I have. And Paul keeps saying, no, 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 no. You already know the truth. Let's go back. Let's go back and look at what we know to be true. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's told us over and over He is the Messiah. He's the God-man. He loves you. He came and did this for you. So you see his heart. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Taken captive. Taken captive. The imagery of that, I think, feels like a lasso. You were the church. You were worshiping. Things were going okay. You were moving in the, you may not have been walking with Christ. You may not have been studying the scriptures. You may have become discouraged. You may not have been knit together. And all of a sudden, somebody threw out an argument that sounded plausible. And they had that lasso and they threw that lasso out. And they caught you and they just started pulling you away. See to it that no one takes you captive by that kind of stuff. As if there's anything other than the person of Christ and his grace and who that is and what that means for us. Don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive. I got to tell you, I think about my kids. They walk onto college campus. Think about your kids. Think about youth group. It's an old story. It's not a new story. We raise kids in the church. I grew up through our nursery, through our children's ministry, our high school ministry. We do a great job with them. You did a great job with them. And then you send them off onto the college campus, Right? And they walk into all those sociology classes and humanity classes. They walk into science classes, and all of a sudden, they, you know, they think they figured out science. And all of a sudden, they get lassoed. And they start getting pulled in. You know, the key, if we don't want to be lassoed, whether or not it's a college kid, whether it's younger than a college kid, whether it's you and me, We need to get serious about putting encouragement into our souls, knitting together our arms with other people so that we know Christ, so that we can start walking with Christ. And as we start walking with Christ, it will pervade every relationship we have. That's where faith grows. That's where faith is going to happen. See, what they may not understand and what our world may not understand is no system of beliefs has ever given itself for you like Jesus did. A system of beliefs cannot possibly offer you life. Jesus did that. A system of beliefs doesn't transform you from the inside out. Only Jesus Christ can do that. 
So when we come back to this, what we've got to look at is this. The idea that he says, walk in Christ, grow in Christ, so that you can see the traps coming. Because they're coming, they're everywhere. They're all around us. Walk into any restaurant today at lunch, and there will be people having conversations about philosophical traps. The question isn't whether they're out there. The question is, can we withstand them? Can we stand up to when the lasso comes at us, will we be ready? Now, what are the persuasive arguments that you and I are facing? Well, I mean, they change with every generation, don't they? And they change with every generation. Here's a few that I was writing down thinking about today. Where should our priorities be? What's your number one priority in life? I thought about that. I thought, how do you handle your relationships? What's your role in that? How do you handle conflict? What's the best way for us to engage in conflict? Where am I going to find value and meaning in this life? See, all of those questions are answered in this book. All of them are answered in this book. The question is, the world is giving us answers too. And when the world's giving us answers that do not align with this book, the lasso is coming for you and me. And the question is, where are you going to stand in that? Have you ever been taken captive before? Have you ever been taken captive by any of this stuff that's going on in the world, human traditions? Let me tell you, Christians can be so bad at philosophy sometimes. Some of them are sharp. But, you know, when we start adding world philosophy, you know these so well, you can complete them. God helps those who help them. See, all of you know, right? God won't give you anything more than you can. That's what we came up with, that brilliant stuff. Which isn't it interesting that when it comes to that stuff, you and I would look around and be like, yeah, man, that's good truth, man. I really feel freed up in that. God will help me if I grab the first rung of the ladder and start climbing myself. God doesn't promise that. God never promises you that he won't give you more than he can handle. I know this. I can't handle life today on my own. I don't know why I think that there's a standard that I could handle on my own. We're all shipwrecks waiting to happen, right? So the idea that you and I would take into any of that, how about this one? And this is the one I hear so much. My God would want me to be happy. Let me tell you. When somebody puts a personal pronoun in front of God and designates God as that person's God, that ought to send up red flag. That's the siren, right? We need to hear that siren. My God would want me to be happy. And really what I want to say is God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. And what he knows about you is this, is that as you're holy, you will be faithful. And as you're faithful, he will reward you. And when he rewards you, you'll be the happiest you've ever been because you were living out God's purposes in your life. It's a different way to think about life. But our world is so busy like, hey, God will help those who help themselves. That's not from Scripture. Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Lance, you already read that. No? No, see, earlier I read Proverbs 14, 12. This is Proverbs 16, 25. See, they're the same. And if God doesn't have to repeat himself, but if God ever repeats himself, our ears better pop up. Because I think he wants to say, hey, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, you're not all that you think you are when it comes to figuring out the meaning and the purpose of life. I've offered it to you. I've demonstrated that to you. Albert Einstein is somebody that we have no record of him coming to faith. There's some debate as to where he ended, if he ended as an atheist or not. I know this. Albert Einstein had said that he never could reconcile the fact 
that the infinite loved the finite, that the creator loved the created. It makes no sense. Why would the sovereign die for the slave? Why would the creator not wipe out creation and create all over again? It doesn't make any sense. I agree, Einstein. You're absolutely right. It makes no sense. You know what else doesn't make sense? This verse. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It makes no sense. The creator looks at the created and said, hey, if too much is going on in your life, bring it back to me and let me carry it for you. That makes no sense. We came up with God helps those who help themselves. God will help you carry it. If you start carrying it, that's not scripture. That's not gospel. That's not good news. The invitation that we can go to the creator, the sovereign, the infinite, and bring it to him, well, that's what led Augustine to say, I've read Plato and Cicero. I've read the philosophical greats. They've said things that are wise and beautiful, but you know what they never have said? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. It's the truth of the gospel. There's nothing more beautiful than this. This is it. Paul writes and asks two different times for uh, people to be praying for him. Here's the first of them. It was in Ephesians 6. To that end, he's writing to believers, keep alert with perseverance, keep praying, saints, brothers and sisters, make supplication for all of our other brothers and sisters, keep praying for what God's going to do. And look at what he said. For me, that I would be given the opening to open my mouth boldly. As he says, when I go out to preach, I want you to pray that I'm bold in what I say. I don't want to be seeking the approval of men. I want to be bold. Later in Colossians, he adds this prayer request. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for the word and then see it, that I may make it clear. He says, pray that I would be bold and that I would be clear. The philosophies of this world may be bold, but they certainly are not clear. Paul said, pray that I'd be bold and be clear. And I would ask this. I would ask that you take it on yourselves to be praying for the leadership team of Grace Church that we would be bold and clear. Is that we don't ever shy away. It's getting harder in this world. Pray that we continue to be bold and clear. So let me be really bold and clear and tell you some things about this person of Jesus, why he is preeminent over philosophy. John 3, you may be familiar with this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love for you was so overwhelming that he gave his son. Abounding in thankfulness, that's why we do that, because he gave his son. Well, why did he set it up that way? Did he have to? John goes on to say, God didn't send his son into in, the world in order to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Catch that? It wasn't that condemnation came when Jesus came. Condemnation was here. That's all our world knew. But then Jesus came. So all of a sudden, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he didn't believe in the name of the only Son of God. That's his great love for you. That's the gift of the preeminence of Christ and who he is. John 14, Jesus said this way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's not philosophy. Cicero can't get you there. Plato can't get you there. No prevailing philosophy gets you there. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. Those are Jesus' words. And then the beauty of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might re receive adoption as sons and daughters. All of a sudden, we get invited into the family of God because of the gift of Jesus Christ. 
Philosophy can't do that. The preeminence of our Savior can do that. If you're thinking, hey, what do I know about Laodicea? I think I knew about that. Well, was that a fluent town? Pass the letter on to Laodicea. They're going to need to see it too. If you're thinking, where do I know Laodicea from? See, Revelation records the stories of seven churches. Six of them get a commendation for something. There's one church in Revelation that receives zero commendation. Guess what it is? Laodicea. Matter of fact, it gets recorded this way. Laodicea, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you'd just be either cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. You're not hot or cold, and I will spit you out of my mouth. And my fear is this. They had one foot in the world. They had one foot in their faith. They had one foot in the philosophers. They had one foot with Scripture. They were affluent. They were self-sufficient. They could do it themselves, and they tried to. And in the end, with a foot in each world, Jesus said, I, I, I got nothing to commend you for. Would it not be our story that we would never have that? Because these same loving exhortations that Paul offered the church at Colossae and by extension Laodicea are the same words that he's offering you and me today. It's not whether or not plausible arguments are coming that will delude us, things that will take us captive, things that are trying to lasso us today. That is certainly true. The question is, will we fall victim to the lasso? That's the question. And Paul's exhortation to us is this. Walk in Christ. Let it pervade the way you think, the way you process, the way you engage. Let it shape your worldview, your moral code. Let it transform the way you act in this world. Grow in your faith. Keep watering it. It's already rooted. Now take care of it so that it can continue to grow, that we may remain free, that we took everything back and put it against Scripture. This gift of Jesus Christ that we will celebrate this month is preeminent over any human system of thinking ever. It's the most beautiful thing. It's the most beautiful gift you will ever see. Let's stay true to it. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.